Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Mur Lafferty. Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Alistair Stewart. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is, in essence, a five-star meal for your brain. Over the course of the next 20 minutes, what you will experience is the insight of our other hosts' incredible abilities and talents as we discuss with her what she does how she does it, and what's coming next for her. It's an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, indeed. Well said, sir. As always, the man of words. Dear friends, Alistair Stewart, uh, evil genius of the Escape Artist podcast, what, quartet now, correct? Well, we have four shows and we have Mothership Zeta, the digital magazine as well. Exactly. Expanding the media empire of Escape Artists. Very cool. Uh, uh, always a delight, sir. We we embraced in manly hugs at Worldcon, which was always a delight, and and I can't tell you how delighted I am to have you at least virtually here in the RTP studios, man. Thanks for making the time. It's always a pleasure, Dave. Ah, uh, indeed, it is. It is, and honestly, you know, Al, you know, I I indulge in these long stalkerish intros. I do a lot of research for people. In researching our guest host for this episode, I stumbled upon some interesting tidbits about yourself. Really? I, such as? Such as the fact that the first podcast you ever listened to all the way through was the first episode of Escape Pod. That's correct. And the second podcast you ever listened to all the way through was episode one of Pseudopod. That's right. See, this is this is all germane uh, uh, to the meal we're about to be served here at the round table. I just... I just found that a lovely bit of synchronicity and and interweaving of of destinies and lives uh, uh which just continues to happen more and more as the internet unfolds well out dude sit back what what is your libation of choice uh, uh over there across the great pond this evening Oh, I'm I'm rocking the water good and hard. I'm I'm still slightly dehydrated from international travel, so I'm. Uh, I, there is a lot of hydrogen and oxygen happening over here right now. That's awesome. Well, well, well use it moderately, but definitely use it. Take it. Take a swig. Uh, I will. on that sweet sweet stuff. And uh, allow me to introduce you to our guest host for this episode. May I? Please do. Ah, very good, sir. Thank you. Uh, uh, now. Friends, the internet has wrought some profound changes in the world of publishing, uh, and some would argue that the ebook has been the catalyst for much of those changes, but I disagree. Now, make no mistake, it is a serious game changer, but more than that, the internet gave us each other. The internet closed the gap between the author and the fan. The gap between fan and fan and author and author was closed as well, and suddenly, there was a community. And more than that, there was a medium through which that community could share ideas and infect each other with our inspirations and visions of what could be. And that, my friends, is more powerful than a hundred Amazon.coms. 
Now, many of us were infected by this viral passion to tell stories. The early 2000s was a flashpoint for that contagion. And dear friends, I would argue that for many of us, our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With was patient zero for that contagion. In December 2004, she began broadcasting her viral message, waving her geek flag proudly and infecting her listeners with germs of inspiration and delight. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's roll back the clock to the early 80s, shall we, when our guest host is about eight or nine years old. Her gaze sweeps across the bookshelves of her room, and she sees that her books are all falling apart. Books like Ramona the Pest and The Mouse and the Motorcycle by Beverly Cleary, covers separating from pages because she's reading them so much. Now, a few years later, Robin McKinley and Madeline Lengel are added to her personal library. Books like The Hero in the Crown and A Wrinkle in Time. And these books awoke something different in her. They spoke to her inner geek and portrayed female protagonists in a genre largely defined by male characters. She wanted in on that action. So she started writing. A year or two later, she read Fred Saberhagen's Lost Sword series, and disappointed when the series ended, as many of us were, she decided to continue it on her own. Uh, there's another epic tale, a majestic saga, about all her friends and a cadre of different colored unicorns that was also written. Sadly, this early masterwork has been lost to the capricious cruelty of time. High school whizzed by with pages of stories written. This continued when she enrolled in and attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, working towards an English degree. She even took some creative writing courses while she was there, further honing her craft. But then, I don't know, we've all felt this, that ticking clock as college winds down and you think to yourself, oh damn, shit's about to get real. Now, I'm betting our guest host felt that as well. And that ticking clock that makes us do some crazy things. Like our guest host, she decided that if she wasn't a perfect writer by the end of college, then she wasn't meant to be a writer. Now, as we all know, perfection is a journey, not a destination. But sadly, that began a decade, 10 years of no writing. She did learn HTML in 1995, but no writing. She held on to the mantra that someday she would be a writer, but it wasn't until the new millennia dawned that someday arrived. In 2001, she started writing for role-playing game companies like White Wolf and Blizzard, and she published essays in publications like Grumble Magazine and Hub Magazine, piloted at the time by a literary rascal named Lee Harris, who our guest host would work with when he ascended to the role of editor at Angry Robot Books. She had a non-fiction column in Knights of the Dinner Table for several years, discussing geeky lifestyle, parenting as a gamer, and other topics important to her as a gamer, a writer, a mom, a geek, and a woman. Then, in 2004, a friend told her about this new thing all the kids were doing 
podcasting. She was all over that. She enlisted her husband's help in getting up to speed on this whole audio thing. And then December 2004 saw the inaugural broadcast of Geek Fu Action Grip, broadcasting her essays, many of them from her tenure with Grumble Magazine, on geek culture. But hey, why stop there? If you're broadcasting nonfiction, why not broadcast fiction too? And that, my friends, is how the world was introduced to the Heaven and Hell series, the first of many stories she would broadcast across the airways, and on a personal note, the very first audio fiction podcast content that I ever consumed. Now, in 2005, our guest host was only aware of one other podcast for writers. And and I want to pause for a moment. Just let that sink in. Only one podcast for writers. Can you imagine it? What a a, a desolate place the potosphere used to be. Now, that podcast was Mike Stackpole's show, The Secrets. And since that show was focusing on the craft from a pro's point of view, our guest host figured she'd do a show focusing on the POV of someone who's still learning and trying to get published. And thus, I Should Be Writing was born. And if I may indulge in some subtle foreshadowing, also in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina ripped through New Orleans, our guest host got together with some friends to do a print-on-demand RPG book to benefit the New Orleans Red Cross. And during that project, she was inspired to write a short story titled The Shambling Guide to New Orleans. And I'm just going to let that sit there for now. Ah, meanwhile, podcasting was catching on. People were handing out awards, which is cool, but no one was giving out awards for audio fiction or writing podcasts. And our guest host was bitching about this with Mike Menenge one day in 2006, and he dragged in Tracy Hickman of Dragonlance fame, and together, the three of them founded the Parsec Awards. And incidentally, the Parsecs just concluded their 11th award ceremony at DragonCon this month, and they're going strong. She also co-founded Pseudopod, a horror podcast spinoff of the fabulous Escape Pod science fiction podcast with then Steve Ely and Ben Phillips. In 2007, she stepped down as co-editor of Pseudopod and she got laid off from her day job, which kind of sucked. But 2008 started to turn things around. The year before, she had podcast her novella Playing for Keeps and in 2008, it was published by the sadly defunct Swarm Press and it won the Parsec for Best Novella. In 2010, Phillips and Ely invited our guest host to edit the Escape Pod podcast. And she thought they were joking because she had a hundred other things on her plate at the time, but she realized it would be a grand adventure. And from 2010 to 2012, it was. And during her tenure there, she initiated the podcast paying SIFWA pro rates for the stories they broadcast. That was a major step forward. But the adventure wasn't just going on at Escape Pod. In 2012, her short story, 1963, The Argument Against Louis Pasteur, was published in Anne and Jeff Vandermeer's anthology, The Thackeray T. Lambshead Cabinet of Curiosities. And that qualified her for the Joseph W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, an honor she would ultimately claim in 2013. And another wonderful thing happened during her tenure at Escape Pod. You remember that short story from 2005 set in New Orleans? Well, it kind of stuck with her. And she continued to work at it, shaping and reshaping it until it became a novel, The Shambling Guide to New York City. And she sold that book to Orbit Books. 
That was followed by Ghost Train to New Orleans. And holy crap, it was recently announced that The Shambling Guide has been optioned for production by Netflix. And just recently, February 2015, I Should Be Writing episode 339 announced a new podcast hosted by our guest host, along with the eloquent, straight-shooting, unfiltered, and fabulous Matt Wallace, author of the Sin Du Jour series of novels through Tor.com. The podcast is titled Ditch Diggers, and at the time of this recording, Ditch Diggers has just released 29 episodes into the world, and they're just getting started. Now, friends, look. I know I've acquired something of a rep for hyperbole and flamboyant exuberance in my various dealings on the internet. Uh, Honestly, in an earlier draft of this intro, I compared our guest host to Jesus. (laughs) So, yeah, I've I've earned that stigma and I bear it proudly. But all hyperbole aside, our guest host hasn't changed the world. She hasn't cured sickness, abolished hunger, or redefined the paradigms of human expression. But here's what she did do. She made a choice to pursue a dream, and she overcame crippling anxiety to share her journey in pursuit of that dream with anyone who would listen. And through the public journaling of those struggles and frustrations, she gave us a roadmap that charts one possible path from aspiring writer to published author. She didn't set out to do that, but then a lot of great achievements are just the natural side effect of doing what you love. So no, she hasn't changed the world, but I can say with absolute honesty that she did change mine and a lot of others. And really, that's kind of badass. Dear friends, please welcome back to the big chair here at the round table. Last heard, oh my God, back in episode nine, many, many years ago, Mur Lafferty. Mur, <laughs> I apologize. It has been way too long since you graced us here at the RTP Virtual Studios, uh, but I'm delighted that we get to rectify that situation right now. Thank you so much. You know, I think I'm going to have I'm going to get your phone number and I'm going to call you anytime I feel bad about myself because you make it sound really cool. I'll tell you what, I'll just I'll just take this audio snippet and and you can use it as like your alarm when you wake up in the morning. Can, <laughs> how about that? You can be introduced by me every Oh, there's a market there, I think. I may be onto something. I think you are. <laughs> Thank, thank you for inviting me back in that wonderful intro. You're very welcome, Mur. We, we the, the feeling is mutual. I, I did want to ask you, before we actually set the clock for the 20 minutes with, I did have a question. Obviously, sure. stalkerish research, blah, blah, blah. Um, something struck me that, you know, really, some of your first credited stuff in the biz was writing for, for White Wolf and for Blizzard, for World of Warcraft and so on. Actually, and, uh, White Wolf also did the World of Warcraft so, oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they got the license from Blizzard. I just don't want to say I wrote for Blizzard. Sure, I didn't. sure. Okay, very good. Very good. We'll make that make that note in the in the bio notes. But but uh, have, do you have any impulse to dive back into that gaming experience? So much of no. your work recently. No. Not, not at all, huh? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Definitive With, no. I, what? I, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I'm just curious. Uh, uh, why not? I, uh, it paid three cents a word and Mm -hmm. it paid nine months after I finished the job. (laughs) 
I had one job, I won't say who, because I'm a professional, who said they wouldn't pay me until the book started to make money, which mm. is not quite how you're supposed to do business. Mm. Um, when I, I heard one person uh, started at three cents and asked for a raise and got four, like after two books, and I'd written like five at the time, so I asked for a raise and got three and a half. Um, it was, it was, there's a, there's easier ways to make money right now. <laughs> gotcha. Sorry. It's, it was not enough fun to be worth it. Once I started working on other things, nope, I really enjoyed totally it. Legit. I learned a lot, but, uh, the business practice of the RPG world when I left it was so terrible. I would never go back. Understood. Understood. And totally legit. I mean, we, we all have uh, uh, things that are impinging upon our time and we only have so much time in the day. So you got to pick and choose. That's totally cool. I, yeah. I was just just curious because because you are kind of the uber geek and you do dabble across all of the various uh, uh, spectrum wavelengths of geekery. Uh, so but cool. Very cool. Thank you for that. I appreciate the, I appreciate your candor as always. I feel, I feel bad starting out on a negative note. No, no. I, I, Hey, I opened the door. You just came through and laid it down. It's all good. Uh, but we can, we can, we can pick up the vibe. Let me just set the clock. Cause I'm going to actually start our official 20 minutes and <laughs> I have a, a profound sense that we're going to ignore that poor clock. Uh, but you know, it's good to have goals. All right. Um, Mer, the first panel that I attended at this year's Worldcon was your reading from your latest book with Orbit, Six Wakes, which is coming out in, what, early 2017, right? July, uh, January, yes. January, very good. Um, the reading was fabulous, by the way, as always. Uh, uh, and I, it got me thinking, you know, I tend to associate, and this is part of my my first blush of your work uh, uh, with, you know, the Heaven and Hell series uh, uh, and the Ghost Train in New Orleans and Shambling Guide. Uh, uh, you are no stranger to sci-fi, uh, but it feels like the bulk of your work has been more urban fantasy, fantasy, superhero vibe stuff. Um, and I'm curious, now that you're diving in, sinking your teeth into the novel length, epic sci-fi experience, uh, uh, how has that uh has it changed the way that you are writing a story, uh, moving from one genre to another? Does moving from one genre to another change the way you tell a story, or do you find it to be a very similar experience? I find it to be a similar experience. I wrote science fiction, and I I wouldn't call it fantasy science fiction like Star Wars, just you know, magic uh, technology here and there, mm -hmm. but it's not hard science fiction like uh greg bear kim, or yeah, yeah kim stanley robinson right. who you know will spend an entire chapter telling you how the computer works or how you know the generation how generation ship needs x many years to slow down right. kind of thing um i i kind of hit the middle where i i did some research and i said in essence what i wanted to say but i don't delve into incredible long detail descriptions hard for me it's mm -hmm. it's one of my weaknesses and so the idea of even if i did have the scientific knowledge or did all the research i can't imagine writing a chapter like that it, <laughs> it, i really i can't imagine doing it it's uh nothing against the people who do it well it's just not my preference or my skill set so aside from making sure that a couple of things were 
scientifically possible. Of course, I do have some cloning technology in there that's just, right. you know, hand wavy. I'll, I'll admit it. There's some no lovely problem. zero G fluid dynamics in there as well in your that opening is scene. Right. <laughs> zero G fluid dynamics. I was talking to Dr. Pamela Gay, who uh, podcast aficionados might remember her from uh, 365 Days of Astronomy, I think. And she does a couple of podcasts, a lot of uh education outreach type stuff, really cool science podcasting. And I was talking to her about various things and she started telling me with great relish what happens to wounds in zero G and how blood acts in zero G. And I was just like, I am this, I am putting a lot of this. (laughs) And you did, and you did it beautifully. (laughs) The book opens in zero G with a lot of wounds. And uh, so I got to do some really cool stuff with that. But the the big change for me was not the genre of urban fantasy or contemporary fantasy to science fiction. It was humor to thriller. Mm. Because I inject humor in almost everything I write. It's, uh, it's a comfortable place for me. Humor's not easy, but I find it my favorite place to write. And I had a couple of go arounds with my editor where they're just like, look, the humor diffuses the tension here. You need to up the tension in this scene. And I had to take it down in some places. And I left some in because sometimes you need the humor, the the tension diffused. But Well, and and humor also is good for bringing down someone's defenses before you give them a big shock. Yes, exactly. So, but... I did have to remove some of the humor because it was not helping the thriller aspect of the book. So that, that was the, that was the bigger challenge humor to thriller than fantasy to sci-fi. So really the change was more in the revision and editorial process than necessarily the first draft coming up with the story and evolving it. Sure. Okay. That, see, that, that interests me because from a fan perspective, you look back and you look at sci-fi and you look at fantasy and you go, oh my God, they're like polar ends of the experience. They're totally different. They have a different fan base. There's a lot of Venn diagram bleed over, but sci-fi fans tend to be very hardcore sci-fi and fantasy tends to be very fantasy. Uh, it, it tends to be a polarizing uh, uh, factor, I, th- I think anyway. Um, but it's interesting that when you actually are getting down to the nuts and bolts of telling a story, there's fundamentally, other other than some set pieces and tropes, there's fundamentally no difference between them. No, it's 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 all it's all about stories. Um, you need to tell a story. You need some characters with some conflicts, and you need to have a setting that pulls people in. And whether the setting is imaginary in a science fiction world or imaginary in a fantasy world, uh, or historical, uh, a fantasy alternate history type thing. Um, <laughs> You know, you got to make it believable, but really, it. I I hold firm to the belief that the story is is the star. So, you know, some some hard science fiction, especially in the past, has has done more with the science than with the story, or more with the <laughs> plot than with the characters. But I am in the let's tell a good story about interesting people first and foremost. Well, and I think the fans are have, have cultivated and become more sophisticated in that regard. And I think by and large, and I'm making a sweeping generalization here, uh, uh, but I think fans have come to the point where 
that expectation of good story and good character really is tantamount, whatever the setting might be. You see this in stories and in video games as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, video games are are my new jams. Yeah, my new my new squee factor actually, because I know so many authors. I don't get so quite giddy when I meet a favorite author. But, you know, if if somebody from BioWare follows me on Twitter, I get really excited. It's really it's really strange. No, I, I get it. Every we, we've all got our we've all got our thing that we go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And and if we ever stop having that thing, we're probably doing it wrong. I th- I yeah. <laughs> we'll be back with more of our conversation with Merle Lafferty after this brief promotional break. Ever notice that it gets dark just before it's time for bed? That's pretty convenient, isn't it? I can think of a dozen uses for Vegemite. Not a single one involves actual consumption. Hundreds, sometimes thousands, of random and quirky thoughts flip through our little brains every day. Thinking about founding the International Order of Dainty Silk Underwear Inspectors. Strictly for science, of course. Sometimes we allow those thoughts to surface long enough to be recognized as hidden gems. Don't look now, but I'm naked. Under my clothes. Scott E. Pond has been collecting his random thoughts and observations for the last six years. Mental Graffiti contains the best of the best, hand-selected for you for this volume. Whoever let loose ninja goats into my dream last night, screw you. You ruined a perfectly good top-secret mission I was on with Celine Dion. Mental Graffiti. Available on Amazon in both ebook and print on January 29th, 2016. Sometimes you need to take a can of spray paint to your brain. Other times, your brain is the spray paint. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Murr Lafferty. Al, I'm going to get out of the way, man. What questions do you have for, for Mighty Murr? Well, as strange as it might be to believe, and Mur and I do talk from time to time. So. <laughs> in what in what capacity, Al? If well, you would Dave, elaborate, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we we talk in several capacities. In in fact, I, I'm going to introduce a new word to, to your vocabulary. Mur and I are what we refer to as each other's boss employee. Boss employee. <laughs> boss employee. Mur works for me in a capacity as the editor of Mothership Zeta, Escape Artist's quarterly uh, digital magazine that covers all the genres that, that the podcasts cover, but adds in a whole bunch of really fun other nonfiction stuff, and a load of original content. And she, Karen Bovenmeyer and Sunil Patel, and the team that they've assembled are just doing incredible work over at MZ, and I'm incredibly happy with everything that they're doing. So that is, is the capacity in which I am Mur's boss. And then... There is also the capacity in which Mur is my boss, where we have weekly meetings where I, I believe we settled on business manager as, yeah. as my, my official title. I act as her business manager, which is an incredibly fancy way of saying that we talk for about an hour every week and uh, we talk about what she's got on and what <laughs> needs to be scheduled and what doesn't and you know what appointments need to be hit and you know whether anything's on fire at the moment. And go from there. And I basically act as a sounding board for her for an hour. So we, we take turns employing the other one, really. And it, it, we've been doing this for over a year now, and it works really well. 
Which which begs the question then, what what question what question do you want to ask Murr? Given given that you you meet frequently and there's probably very few uh, surface questions that you would need an answer to. What what are you curious about? I, I think this has probably come up in conversation a couple of times already, but I I can't if it has I can't for the life of me remember the answer. And it's this. With unlimited capacity and unlimited opportunity and everything else, what's your dream project? What's Ooh. the thing that you would love to do that you haven't quite done yet? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. There are a bunch of things I want to do, but it's like, I, I don't know if I could choose one to be the, the <laughs> Pick, pick your top, top three. Um, top three. I think I would like to write an epic fantasy that's not... Incredibly derivative. Okay. Epic fantasy has... I, I tell very linear stories about a small group of people. And epic fantasy often weaves... Well, actually, I don't, I don't, Six Wakes isn't terribly linear, I just realized. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very difficult to write. And, and I admire the works of George R. R. Martin and Melanie Ron, how they can tell a, a wide-ranging story about a whole bunch of people and how politics and the things that happen in this country will affect the other country a, a generation later kind of thing. And uh, I think I would like to be able to do that. I would like to write a game someday. I, uh, role playing game or board game? Uh, a, a, a computer game, computer game. Okay. Like may, I, I guess mainly I'm thinking interactive fiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it has been something I've been researching and seeing if I could do, there's some things I need to get my brain around that I haven't yet, so um, haven't really delved deep into that. So there's that project. I want to do a collaboration with Ursula Vernon, who's a good friend of mine, and she's local. And when we get together, we come up with really weird stuff, <laughs> like the uh, billionaire uh, where anglerfish erotica story we were talking about. <laughs> Where yep. let me let me rephrase let me let me re speak that back to you billionaire where angler fish yeah okay yeah. got okay. it okay oh, yeah. so so in essence the most submissive male in the entire animal kingdom I would say is the male angler fish so imagine Christian Gray or whatever the hell his name is from Fifty Shades <laughs> of Gray getting bitten by a where angler fish what would it do to his personality. <laughs> And the woman who bit him is out on her uh, her floating casino waiting for the full moon for him to come back and just latch onto her. And then she gets his testicles and then he's gone. Wow. If, if your listeners don't know about the lifespan, life cycle of the anglerfish, look it up. The onion, uh, not the onion, uh, oatmeal has a great visual explanation of what happens with uh, the <laughs> anglerfish male life cycle. Um so yeah, we we just we come up with the weirdest shit, and uh, I would like to collaborate with Ursula one day. However, Ursula is like me; she's a working freelance writer, and she has a billion projects on her plate. And so I don't know when we'll be able to collaborate, but I would like to someday. Just as a really really quick aside to listeners in general, both Mer and Ursula are incredibly worthwhile followers on Twitter. Oh my God! Yes, for for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is they're both extremely funny, 
and they're both incredibly intelligent and perceptive and on point and helpful. And also because every now and again, Ursula will kick off about something <laughs> horticulturally related. If you possibly can, see if you can dive back in her timeline and look for a tweet that starts in block capitals. Okay, let's talk about potatoes. Oh, and God, potatoes. It, it's, it's incredible. See, and the horticultural rant really is an underserved aspect of the Twitter streams, I think. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Well, and, and you know, Mer, Al and I both find ourselves in this uh, not unenviable position of, of when somebody tells us what they want to do, uh, we, we are both finding ourselves getting closer and closer to that place where we can actually kind of help uh, uh, make those dreams come true. We're like, we're becoming the Make-A-Wish Foundation for, <laughs> for creative uh, uh, expression. Uh, uh, so I'm certainly making notes. I know Al is too. And hopefully a few of our listeners are too uh, out there. Very cool. Um, Mer, there, there's two areas that I wanted to explore with you. And, and one of them might be a non-starter because... Uh, uh, while I agree, your humor is definitely a trademark, a thread that runs throughout much of your narratives, and you do it very well. I'm not sure you understand how you do it well. Do you, or is that more of an instinctive thing? It's instinct. I kind of uh, I, I did, when I got my MFA a couple of years ago, I studied humor, and I made it... Um, one, one of the requirements for graduation is you have to teach a, uh, teach a lecture on a topic and I decided to do humor and I did a lot of research and sloppy people will tell you that, you know, you either know how to do it or you don't, which is complete bullshit because, right. you know, if you, that would mean that comedians would either start out perfect or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's not how it goes. People have to practice jokes. They, they refine them. They figure out what, word needs to be added or, or subtracted. And one thing I discovered is when you study humor, it's not funny at all because you have to dissect it like a frog. And once you dissect the frog, the frog's not going to be hopping around and pleasing everybody anymore. But you'll understand how the next living frog works a little bit better. I remember Howard Taylor apparently did a talk at Gen Con about humor and I'm really sad I missed it because I heard some great things about it. Howard, I think Howard knows how the frog works a lot better than I do. Okay. And in some cases, I think it's, I would like to, to pick his brain because it's, it's, it's good to know how it works because if something doesn't land, you'll know why. Sure. And, but usually I write whatever comes to mind and if it's funny, then yay me and if it's not then <laughs> I don't I don't but I don't specifically write like humor it's not like a Terry Pratchett Douglas Adams type this mm -hmm. book will make you laugh in every single scene kind of thing do you recall any of the aha moments you had as you were researching for your presentation that that illuminated something that you were just doing instinctively yes um, the book is the hidden tools of comedy by, uh, I believe Stephen Kaplan, and he dis discovers that there is a formula to a comedy that keeps it from being a tragedy. And that is a person who is completely inept at something, tries to do something, and fails horribly, and doesn't give up. And I kept thinking about Arthur Dent trying to make tea on the heart of gold, <laughs> tying up the computer, 
keeps trying to figure out what to do about it, hits the infinite improbability. I mean, he just doesn't give up. <laughs> and um, I did another talk for a group of kids at uh, the Shared World's uh, Jeff Vandermeer's summer camp thing. And the morning of my talk about humor, where I was going to talk about that kind of scenario, I was nervous. I'm not, I'm not terribly good with kids and um, like groups of kids. I have a kid. Right. I'm good, right. okay with her. But, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was nervous about this talk and I, I, got out to my car and I hadn't driven my car in a couple of days. We'd carpooled and I looked and I'd left a drink inside. It was a new car, like two weeks old. And I'd parked on a hill and I parked touching the hill. And so I opened the car and there was a colony of ants just going back and forth from the soda over my steering wheel into the, my brand new car. And I'm freaking out. And then I'm driving around trying to find a gas station to vacuum. And uh, I don't know this area. And so I can't find a gas station. I have no, I have no sense of direction. Some people say that, but it's it's really, really true for me. It's like I was probably like one block over from all the gas stations, driving up and down the street, wondering why I couldn't find any gas stations. <laughs> Once I found the gas station, I went over to the air thing. I put my only 50 cents in and I hit the air <laughs> that blows out, not vacuum. And I just realized, it, it, I think it was that point when I realized that I was living my, my exact <laughs> lecture. I was my lecture that morning before I was giving it because I was trying to get ready to do this lecture and I was bumbling around, failing everything, but I did not give up. <laughs> yeah, and, and it takes a writer to, to have that, that epiphany, that moment of awareness where it's like, holy crap, I'm living a story right now. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah. and that, that helped me keep my cool the rest of the time and and you know when more things went wrong i'm just like oh yeah yeah that that, that happens narratively thank you thank you for <laughs> governing my life for making something else go wrong life affirming art so yeah it's of all the books that i read i highly recommend the hidden tools of comedy very much Be, because also he lists some movie scripts that work well and movie scripts that don't work well Hmm. So he's like got, and of course you don't recognize the movies that he's referencing that didn't do well, didn't do comedy well because the movies didn't do well, but he still has the scripts in there. So nice. So you have a reference for both success and failure at comedy. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Friends, make a note. That that sounds like a book to be added to at least the Kindle library, if not your actual tangible paper book library. Very cool. Out, we're running way out of time, but I don't want to stop, and I know you don't either. Do you have uh, another question or, or query for, for uh, Lady Lafferty? Yeah. Ooh, Lady Lafferty. Holy crap. That needs to be like a Regency thing somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, Al. Um. One of the things that always fascinates me are the, the ideas that kind of haunt writers from a very, very early period in their careers. And uh, as, as someone who, who has touched base with very similar things to you in, in that regard, I'm curious, especially with what Dave mentioned about how The Shambling Guide started life as a, as a short story, is there anything in the locker that you think you might come back to at some point or would like to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, I've been toying around with an idea of uh, this. This 
saying this word, these words, there, there's no good way to come back from it unless you're a cult, unless you're an anthropologist, which I'm not. But uh, I've always been fascinated by endocannibalism because not a lot of people cover it in fiction. When you say cannibal, you think of people who go out and kill people and eat them. But endocannibalism is a uh, within the tribe eating your loved ones as a very and a lot of cultures saw it as a very sacred funereal rite and i've done a lot of research on that and i have a a story about a young girl who is not not valued enough in her tribe to be able to take part in these rituals and she goes in and, and steals a cut of meat because she's not invited to the feast and runs away and uh, finds an ecto-cannibalism tribe who actually welcomes her. And so there's that uh, problem where the, the good guys did not want her and the bad guys do. And But yeah, it started with cannibalism, that, that spark. And so I, I've been toying around with this idea for a couple of years now, just never really had, a, had it hit. You really don't filter your creativity at all, do you? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, you know, there's yeah, there, there's a point. You know, we we all you know we cannot turn off the idea engine. Uh, uh, you know, Nathan Lowell has has mentioned many times that as soon as you write an idea down, six more crowd in to fill its place. Yeah. I, ideas are easy. Um, there is. I think there's a tendency with creatives to look at a story as marketable or uh, start assigning and filtering the creative uh, uh, indulgence even before you've you've played with it a little bit. It doesn't sound like you're doing that at all. No, no. But the, the fact that I haven't, I've written it as a proposal and not sold it hmm. is one reason why I haven't fully pursued writing it. Sure. So there is a little bit of marketability in question there, but it the mark the question of marketability has not changed the idea. Um, there's not much of a plot in what I just told you. <laughs> right. So I think if I could come up with a better plot, um, I could make it a little bit more uh, marketable. You need to bring it onto the roundtable, Murr. Come back as a guest writer. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll brainstorm that bad boy with you. Um. Guys, the the clock has actually died, uh, uh, and, and, and it, its clone has woken up, and it's sitting here floating in zero g with gears all over the place, and it's glaring at me with with deep, deep abiding hatred. Uh, I can only assume that means that we have run out of time, which is a sad, sad thing, uh, uh, but something that we all must deal with. Mert, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming back, and and do let's not have you know like three years pass before we bring you back again, okay? That's a good idea. I would love to come back. Outstanding. Outstanding. Al? Yes, write, sir. Writer's Toolbox got a little fuller, I believe, in the last 20-ish-esque minutes or so. Uh, uh, Absolutely. What, what, what did you pull from that, uh, from that conversation that you're going to hold on to? Really, it's something which comes up whenever I talk to Murr, and that's the, the absolute, and it's also something which you addressed, which is how absolutely honest she is with her creativity. There is, and it, it's not, it's not even the old story of there's no such thing as a bad idea. It's you have to listen to every instinct and every impulse you have, mm -hmm. because you have to explore them. And if you explore them and they they lead you somewhere good, then you'll know. And if you explore them and they don't go anywhere, then you'll know that too. And the sensible thing you do is you put them in a box and wait for them to come back. 
I find that incredibly inspiring. I mean, as as someone whose career in this field started perhaps later than I would have liked it to, yeah, uh, it, it's always very nice to see, and more importantly in this case, to hear that you can always go back to stuff. You can always rebuild things. You can always yeah. take another one at it. Well, and it's liberating from a creative standpoint that 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 if you if you if you create without filters, at least in that private place of your mind where you toy with possibilities, uh, uh, if there is no no limit, if you if you do not ascribe any boundaries to that, the, the, the potential for discovering something that's truly profoundly marvelous, at least for you, is is increased exponentially. I couldn't agree more. Exactly, and and for me, I'm I'm kind of piggybacking on that as well, and it, it is actually Murr's honesty uh, uh, that has stuck in my mind, both in researching her and in, in conversing with her. Uh, it's not that that she doesn't feel uncomfortable uh, uh, when when she has to answer a question in a negative is the very first question on a podcast, but she's going to do it anyway because that's what you do. Because yes. without honesty, then you have no compass. You have you start having to question and and evaluate every step that you make. But if honesty is your is your compass, if if it's like no, I'm not going to bullshit this thing. It, this is the way it is, and this is the truth, and away we go. Uh, again, a liberation. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean that you're <laughs> not going to feel uncomfortable uh, or that feelings won't be hurt. Uh, but in the long run, the, the the strength that comes from both sides of, of an honest conversation uh, uh, does is is in service to all involved. Uh, so so that for me really kind of stood out and is is something given my hyperbolic intendencies uh, is going to be a, a lesson to be learned, but a good one I think. So, all right, friends, here's how this works. That was a fabulous conversation. It always is with Murr. Um, but it doesn't have to end here. In fact, it won't. Uh, if you come back in seven days, we're going to bring Murr back. We're going to bring Al back. And, of course, I'll be here as well. And then we're going to add to the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous being striding forward to seed our conversation with a story idea. And we're going to brainstorm the heck out of that bad boy. Uh, and it's going to be fabulous as it always is. But it's seven days, and that's a long damn time. Al, help our listeners out. What what can they do to make seven days, long days, just, just fly by? Oh, that's a really easy one. Um, if you are lucky enough to have a physical bookstore near, near you, this is especially easy. And if not, if you have Amazon or something like that, do this too. Go to an author or a field that you've never gone to before. Find something. Don't think too hard about why you found it. Maybe the cover looked appealing. Maybe you like the color scheme. Maybe you like the name. Maybe you like the title. Buy it. Read it. I cannot guarantee you will like what you read. I can guarantee it will change how you write. Because every writer I've ever met is like an unusually chirpy, caffeinated Borg. You know, we always take this stuff on board and we, we always absorb it and we always turn it into something new. So go find something new. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. And and again, without filters, without assessment or evaluating what the value is to you, just a gut reaction, respond and explore. I think that's an excellent idea. 
And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the holy crap. I had no idea that was there. If you look for this stuff in your life, if you attune your senses to it, I promise you, friends, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.